Hello, and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director. We're back this week after a short Easter break, but the world has not stopped. This week, we're casting our gaze to France and the domestic and foreign policy travails of the Fifth Republic and its president, Emmanuel Macron. At home, he faces a wave of popular discontent amid his plans to raise France's pension age. We'll be talking about how his decision to bypass the French parliament has affected his ability to govern and looking at his wider standing within the country. Has this opened the door for the far right in the next presidential election? Can France actually be governed? We'll also be looking to the Indo-Pacific this week and discussing the reverberations of Macron's recent visit to China, along with European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. We'll talk about the comments he made around the question of Taiwan and the controversy he stirred up there, what that says about France's wider foreign policy. Joining me down the line this week is Simon Cooper, a writer and journalist with the Financial Times, who wrote a big essay on this recently, which I much enjoyed. Welcome to the podcast, Simon. Hi. Joining him from Paris is Georgina Wright, formerly of Chatham House, but now the director of the Europe program at the Institut Montaigne. Welcome to the show, Georgina. Hi, Bronwyn. Good to have you here. And finally, as well, we have Antoine Bondaz, director of the Korea and Taiwan programs at the Fondation pour la Recherche Stratégique, the FRS. Welcome to the podcast, Antoine. Thank you for having me. Well, great to have you all here. You're all actually in Paris. I'm sitting here alone in London. Um, normally, we have a packed studio, but it's the other way around. Let's start with this big question of whether France uh, is becoming ungovernable, whether indeed there are elements um, that have always made it that way. Let's look with the domestic challenges facing Emmanuel Macron. He's hardly the first president to run into uh, um, obstacles in trying to push forward his policies, but these are quite something. Georgina, perhaps you can just take us through the reforms that he's trying to get through. Well, that's a very broad question. I sort of feel like, how long do we have? Um, I mean, it's important to remember that Macron, this is his second term, um, and he uh, was elected with, you know, on the promise that he was going to deliver a number of very important uh, reforms to get public spending under control. Um, the first one that he's uh, uh, done now, um, you know, passed through rather controversially. Maybe we can come back to that in a minute. Uh, but is to reform uh, the pension system. Now, you know, as a Brit living in Paris, I think I, I sort of underestimated how important and sacred the pension system was in France. It's a little bit like the NHS. Uh, in the UK. So I think any attempt to try and reform it was always going to be very uh, difficult. Um, but he's not stopping there. And he wants to pass a uh, tough sort of immigration bill as well. And that's starting to be discussed. Um, and a number of other reforms as well to get public spending under control. Um, I think it, it's difficult. Of course, he, he was elected uh, for a second time, but he didn't get the majority. Uh, he needed an absolute majority in Parliament. So, so any attempt to pass any legislation, quite frankly, is going to be much harder. Um, but he is certainly not uh, loved at the moment, so it might make the challenge uh, a whole lot harder. Antoine, do you think that this is misguided of him in how to use his final term? I mean, I would say about the pension reform that most of the French people were not against the idea of uh, having a reform. And I think uh, we all agree on the necessity to find a sustainable system that can be financed in the long term, etc. I think much of the critics were about the method of the president and the way the reform was handled. And I think there is indeed a political crisis in France ongoing because of the trust 
that uh, many putting the president has, has collapsed. Uh, and it's going to make, uh, of course, next week fall much more complicated than before. So there are plenty of options that people are discussing whether we should head for new uh, national election to change national assembly, whether we should have a referendum, etc. Uh, the referendum actually could be, if we respect the institution, one of the options that Macron could uh, pick. But once again, when you have a referendum, the key question will be about the question. Uh, and to make sure that this is a question that might gather support and that won't be a question to express frustration or express anger uh, towards uh, the president. So the key question in the coming weeks and in the coming months, since Macron say that uh, he had 100 days, it's actually a bit less because it's up to July the 14th of the National Day, uh, to have a new line, to have a new kind of horizon, political horizon, and a set of reform that could be there, be voted not in the 100 days, sure, uh, but in the next uh, few months and before the end of the year. We have experience of the science of referendums in Britain. Simon, in your big piece in the FT, you were taking a much wider view of the recent history of France. How does this particular bout of turmoil seem to you? There has been, for the last three presidents, Sarkozy, Hollande, and now Macron, enormous resentment towards the president. Hollande's approval ratings at one point hit 4%, which is below Macron even. And so I think you have to start to say it's not just about any one president and any one set of policies. There's something structural inbuilt that's gone wrong in the relationship between population and president and the state more broadly. And I think that there is an issue of the almighty presidency. The way the French presidency was created by de Gaulle 60 years ago is really the most powerful figure in any developed country. The president usually controls parliament. Currently, he doesn't since last April. But even without control of parliament, he can ram through anything without a vote. So parliament doesn't even have to vote. He can just stop parliament and say, okay, as Macron did with pensions, I decree this in a sense. I decree the rise in the pension age from 62 to 64. And that worked for de Gaulle because de Gaulle was a war hero. He was one meter 96. He sort of incarnated France in his very body, even in his name. It doesn't work for modern presidents who just don't come in. They can't come in with that, that kind of stature and respect. And so in France, you have a system where the opposition is not in parliament. The opposition is on the streets. It's the streets, it's demonstrations, it's trade unions, although even the unions are losing control of the street that can stop a president doing things. They tried to stop that with Macron with the pensions. It didn't work. But it seems to me an unsustainable system where the opposition is the streets and where the president is almighty. So I think France has to think about what France periodically does of reforming its system. You know, contrast with the US where the constitution is eternal, can barely be changed. In France, there have been 24 revisions of the constitution in the Fifth Republic alone. That's these last 60 odd years. I think you need to go to a constitution with a much weaker president, maybe not directly elected anymore, and um, where parliament becomes the opposition. Antoine, I can see you nodding vigorously. Uh, do you agree with that? I mean, I mean, for sure. I mean, the, the weak piece and the weak part in our institution in the National Assembly and the Senate, uh, they should be much more powerful. Uh, and especially, they should have the capacity to really assess uh, the work and the action of the government. This is something that is uh, in the Constitution 
to assess the, the, the travail du gouvernement, so, so basically what the government is doing, but they don't have the capability to do so. They don't have the manpower, they don't have the expertise, and they don't have the financial capabilities to do so. And, and that's something that is very specific to the French system. You have nothing comparable to the Congressional Research Service in the U.S., to the European Union Parliament and the European Parliament's Research Service, or the equivalents uh, in the uh, Commons in, in the UK, that would allow our MPs to have an independent and objective analysis of what the government is doing. So what's happened usually is that the, government, the Parliament is going to use the government report, its own report, to assess the work of the government. You should have an independent and autonomous capacity within the National Assembly and within the Senate uh, to do so. It would make the French system much more democratic and it will give actually MPs expertise to be able to make not only better laws, even though most of them come from the governments and they are being, of course, discussed at the National Assembly, but they are not MPs' initiative, uh, but it could uh, increase uh, the, the capacity of these MPs to take the initiative. It would prove the way they can uh, elaborate and, and make the law. And at the end of the day, it would, and that the most important, better control the action and the work of the government. Georgina, what do you make of this? That it is the system itself that is causing this problem? I mean, I, I completely agree with what Simon and Antoine have just said. Um, it was quite remarkable talking to some of Macron's MPs around the time when the government was you know, that they were trying to ram through this this pension reform. Um, because when I talked to them and I said, well, you know, especially as a Brit, it, it, it's quite amazing to see, yes, there have been debates, but now you're not willing to, to, to get Parliament to vote on it. You're just going to use an article from the Constitution which allows you to, to ram it through. And they said, well, we did have lots of debates, but actually the problem was that the opposition wasn't willing to engage with the debate. They weren't even willing to consider the fact that we needed this uh, pension reform. And and I think there was a little bit of naivety um, in, the, in the majority, which thought that they could rely and count on the centre-right party, Les Républicains, who had in the past tried to, to reform the pension system. And, and you could see within the party that there was ambivalence to fully embrace it. So I think they sort of went into it quite naively, thinking that they would count on their support. And then they found out that the debates just, there was no real debate. It was just a lot of shouting and screaming. I mean, you know, a sort of, really quite remarkable scenes in the Assemblée Nationale where you've got, you know, some opposition parties standing up with banners and, and shouting. And um, and then I think when you talked to them beyond the sort of debate side of it, they said there was a real credibility um, uh, sort of implication of the suspension reform, which if we failed to get it through, France simply wouldn't be seen as a credible uh, 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 country within the EU. And we know that France is trying to do a number of reforms inside the EU, from fiscal reforms, from uh, uh, budgetary responses, getting the EU perhaps to increase its budget. And all of that would, of course, uh, be, uh, you know, uh, I mean, one of the key criticisms of France is simply that it can't get its public spending under control. So if you're going to attempt to reform at the EU level, you have to show that you can get your public spending under control. And then the final point that they said, which really surprised me, was, oh, well, actually, if we didn't get this reform through, the markets would react, which I just couldn't believe that some people, and several people said that to me, because I thought, well, with Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse, this is exactly at the same time. I don't think they were going to pay that much attention to, to the markets, weren't going to pay that much attention to this. But nonetheless, there were a number of factors which explain 
why the government went about it the way it did. But as Simon and Antoine says, this points to a more systemic problem. Um, and there are real discussions in Paris and I suppose throughout France about do we need a sixth republic? Do we need a change? And do we need to have a better uh, accountability, parliamentary accountability for what the government does? Which is the point that Simon was making in his piece. I mean, do you think there's any appetite for that? It's great to discuss it on a podcast. France has a marvellous tradition of discussing such things more than perhaps Britain does about its own constitution. But is there really appetite for a Sixth Republic, for, for significant reform? As Georgina says, this is now increasingly being discussed. I mean, in the last election, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the far-left candidate, proposed a kind of uh, constitutional convention and uh, big reforms, uh, get rid of what he calls the elected monarch that is the president. And so I think that after this en basse, I mean, currently there's a lot of people in politics or have the tendency to look at the puppets. So they look at the Macron puppets and they say, I don't like that puppet. That puppet is an evil puppet. But you have to look at the stage itself. And I think once the obsession with the puppet Macron diminishes, people are looking more at the stage and saying, actually, the stage no longer works. It's a, uh, it's a stage built for the post-war era, for a post-war, for a war hero. And so given that in France you can do these reforms, I think it's quite possible. And weirdly, I think the person to initiate it could be Macron, because given the omnipotence of the president, the president is the person best placed to reform the presidency. No skin off Macron's nose because he um, will step down anyway after his second term in 2027. And so this would be a massive legacy. And he's a very ambitious politician. Macron doesn't do small ball stuff. He always aims to go for the big thing, whether it's charming Trump or charming Putin or uh, revolutionizing the French labor markets or the pension system. It often doesn't fully work out, usually doesn't fully work out or work out at all as with his approaches to Putin. But he, he looks for the big challenges and domestically this is one. We'll come on to some of the challenges he's been tackling in a, in a, in a moment um, on the China question. But um, at the moment, we have the stage we have. Georgina, do you think it, it, this is now set for uh, the puppet called Marine Le Pen to, to come on? I think it's really difficult to say. It's certainly benefited her party more than it has benefited any other party. Um, and, and I think Simon's right where there's a lot of anger uh, directed at the puppet. Um, and that's why I think, although we do have more discussions about reforming the constitution, reforming the way government works, um, and the presidency works in particular, um, I still think a lot of it is around personality. Personality of the president really matters in France and in a way that I had, I, I don't think appreciated until I moved here, which was, you know, there's, there's the president as a person, what he believes in his values, but then there's the president, what he incarnates, you know, the, the fact that he's president of France, he, head of state, he represents the country, and there are a number of things that they expect from their president. So, for example, this week, the president was caught singing in the street, um, this sort of traditional song from the Pyrenees, and, you know, a lot of people said that's simply not what a president does. He is head of state, that's just not. So I think there's there's also, Simon's right to say that, yes, there are discussions, but there is also a lot about the person, the, the, and, and I think now it's too early to know who is going to throw their hat in the ring. I mean, when I when I meet MPs of Macron's majority, I always ask them, you know, who's talking about it? And I think it's too early um, to know. But we could see people like Edouard Philippe, who was Macron's prime minister for a while, come back. Um, and, and he's sort of seen as a trusted centre-right uh, figure. 
Um, and the, the question really is, will, will French go for someone like that? Or will they think, actually, now we, we've tried that too many times. Let's just go for something mm. radical to shake up things. I think it, it, you know, it, it is a, it is a possibility. I'm, so, I'm sitting here nodding. It, let me make clear though that I, I picked up the word puppet from Simon's analogy. I'm not sitting here dismissing half of French politics as puppets. Um, Antoine, your your view of the potential for um, of the, all this for the far right? And I was sitting next to a senior French official at, at dinner a few nights ago. He's saying, "I'm really, really worried about this. This could actually usher in a government that has completely different views about." NATO and uh, and European Union and all kinds of things. I, I do think many people worry, not only because Marine Le Pen is very high in the polls, she's also high in terms of credibility in the polls, and this is kind of new. It's not only that people, some people like her, that uh, more and more people consider her as credible, and this is what uh, was lacking before to the far right. Uh, second, uh, I would say that the party itself, Le Rassemblement National, is is getting expertise. And they are training people because some of the MPs are getting trained, some of the MPs are specializing on some issues, etc. And you have kind of the critical mass you need in any single political party to be able to prop up and support a candidacy. And this is once again what was lacking to the Rassemblement National and to Marine Le Pen before. You could identify her, but you could not identify the government that could be elected. I mean, could be appointed. She uh, was to become president and then win the national election. Uh, so on that, I would say the fact that the far right is is becoming more and more as a credible option, and that people within the party are getting trained and getting experience, make I would say the concern much more acute than few years ago. We are still, as Georgina mentioned, very far from the election. We are four years from the election. Uh, no one is going to try to run four years before the election. Even Edouard Philippe is being very, very careful. Uh, but what would be very important for any candidate from the majority or kind of majority um, is to make sure that they are not fully in line with Macron. Uh, because the level of anger and, and, and the level of distrust that many French people have on the president mean that if you judge the hair of the president, if you've been appointed by the president, or if you're being seen as too close to the president, it might not be actually at your advantage. And that's why Edouard Philippe, in a way, is in a good position. He's no longer in the government, he's the former prime minister. Uh, he's considered as competent, as, as having the experience and the expertise without being fully in line with the president. So what might happen in the coming years is for some of the potential and likely candidates from the majority uh, to distance themselves from the president, because this is something they will have to do uh, to have their own email, their own profile, and make sure that they can gather some. Let's use that as the moment to talk just a bit more briefly about Macron's trip to China. And Simon, you were talking about his grand ambitions, if you like. You were talking about de Gaulle. I, w I wondered what you thought Macron was trying to achieve in China. Was there a sense that he was trying to find a, a third way between the great powers? I mean, France has never wanted to be fully aligned with the United States and, you know, was out of NATO, left NATO for several decades. And so it's very much in the French tradition to look at China and Russia as counterweights. 
and to try and navigate somewhere between them. So even de Gaulle, who was a man of the center-right, would make a lot of visits to Soviet Russia. So I think this is, you know, leaving aside Macron's tendency to do what we do and be a kind of think tank, a stroke columnist and philosophize about world affairs in this irresponsible way that people in our professions do, which always sounds very weird when it comes from somebody with a nuclear arsenal. Leaving that aside, I think it's just a very uh, gaullist thing to do. And France always is the only, I think it's the Western country that is most independent of the large Western countries of the American line. Because of course, in Britain, from the 50s after Suez, we took the view, well, we'll be number two. Whatever America does, we'll be right in there with them, and then we'll have a kind of role on the world stage. Germany took the view, we don't want to roll on the world stage. We never want to be out there saying what we think. We'll shuffle up behind other people who say more or less what we think, and we'll make nice to them. We'll also make nice to Russia and China. And so, and the the Germans thought, well, the Americans will do our whole security thing. And so of the three, and Italy never really has sought any kind of role on the world stage commensurate with its size, which is the same as the UK and France until its population began collapsing. So France is the one country that says these kind of non-aligned things, and every time it disconcerts us. Georgina, do you think President Macron was surprised by the reaction across the world to his comments on Taiwan? I mean, across the world and in France, I think Antoine has a number of things that, that he said since since the visit. Um, yes and no. I think Macron is his own man. And so he uh, will sometimes, I think, probably diverge from the speaking points he's given. And as Simon said, there are things that are fundamentally French in what he says, but also fundamentally Macron. And I think uh, Macron is genuinely worried about sort of Europe's resilience and competitiveness in 10 and 15 years' time, which he sees as being challenged by China, of course, but also the United States. So there are genuine concerns. Um, but of course, there are all sorts of issues uh, that, that you could take with the timing of his comments. You know, is this the time when the United States, for example, is so, you know, such a key uh, part, number one partner uh, in this war in Ukraine? And without the United States, uh, Ukraine probably wouldn't be. Um, where it is right now and, and able to sort of resist uh, some of, of, of Russia's um, evasion and attack. Um, and there are also, I think, problems with doing it when you just left China. I think if he'd had this, you know, if he'd given this interview, he's been in Europe for three and a half weeks, I don't think it would have created as much a scandal because what he says isn't necessarily new. Um, I, I, I thought it was quite interesting to look at what the Chinese press were saying about this visit. And it's quite remarkable. They don't talk about Ukraine at all, really. They don't even talk about strategic autonomy because, you know, they love strategic autonomy. They think it means independence from the United States. They're all for it. What they touched upon was the commercial and technical kind of deals that were done and basically saying, you see, France considers us a key trading partner. Look at all the things we're able to do. And actually, two of the big deals were were also done in renminbi rather than US dollar or, or the euro, which is also quite telling. So I think the comment, Macron's comment in his interview about, you know, the warning against the kind of la puissance du dollar or the, the, the kind of the dollar being everywhere, that is just playing into Chinese hands. So I think some of the things that he says he fundamentally believes, I think he can justifiably be criticized for the timing and the place that he chose to do that. But some of these issues are not going away, and I suspect he will continue talking about them. But I think there is a plea 
from his European and, and you know, a lot allies further afield to just, if you're going to say things like this, make sure that you warn us in advance and that you concert us because, but I'm not sure that's something he does. Yes, to say that France and Europe need not, you know, be guided too much by the US is always going to be controversial. I take your point, uh, perhaps less so um, said in a different context. Antoine, did you think there was a significant difference between the way he positioned himself and uh, the way Ursula von der Leyen handled that China trip? And you know, does that matter? For sure. Um, the main objective of the trip was to display a sense of European unity in Beijing. Uh, the same way Macron invited Juncker and Merkel back in 2019 uh, when Xi Jinping made a state visit. Uh, the idea was to show that the Europeans are united, that we are moving forward, that we are developing tools, etc., to assert our whole power, etc. But the biggest problem for me was in terms of communication. Uh, Macron was not insist insisting that much on the risking. It was insisting on the need to cooperate, the need to have trade relations with China, etc. And on that, we all agree. I mean, the risking is not so much about reducing trade with China. It's about increasing trade with the other countries and to reduce the dependence we have on China. And on that, the message that Macron got is clearly not the message that the European Union was trying to. Uh, and, and many compare John Taylor Schultz's visit in November and, and President Macron's visit in, in April but I would say, in a way, that Schultz's visit was more successful, including on the business side. Because even though like, uh, Schultz visited with a small business delegation, since November, he has been to Singapore, Vietnam, Japan, India, Brazil. He will go to Korea soon, etc. So they are diversifying. The image that France is doing is giving is that we, we talk about diversification, but we don't do it. Uh, so that's the first communication problem. The second... I was not surprised at all about what he said about strategic autonomy. And, and there is no debate in France whether we should align on the U.S. I mean, following the U.S. is not something that is in the public debate. No one in France is advocating just to follow blindly the U.S. Uh, so on, on the strategic autonomy side, I was not very surprised. I was much more surprised, and, and we saw the consequences and the fallout on the Taiwan uh, part of the interview. First two questions. Because first, when he mentioned the same part, uh, European unity and Chinese unity, it doesn't make any sense. You're talking on one side of the cooperation and coordination among member states, really, and the Chinese ambition to take over another sovereign country, Taiwan. Then when he mentioned the uh, U.S. base and the Chinese overreaction, you make the U.S. responsible for the current tension in the strait when the key country that want to change the status quo because the objective, official objective, is to take over the island one way or another is China. And the third one, of course, is the sense of the, the idea that uh, if there is a crisis, it won't be our crisis. Uh, and, and on these three aspects, I would say the biggest frame is that it was clearly not in line with French foreign and security policy. And that's why you have, uh, since uh, the interview, huge efforts on the French side, including from Macron himself, and that's quite rare. And you remember the press conference uh, in, in the Netherlands in which he, he will never say he was wrong. He will never say he misanalyzed. Uh, but he said, of course, that we're in favor of stability in the Taiwan Strait, something he never said before publicly, uh, something that we wrote, something that we signed, but something he didn't say. And I think it's, in a way, the blessing in disguise, a good opportunity for the French authorities, diplomats, soldiers, the Trump, to affirm and reaffirm that our line on Taiwan is the same. I would say at uh, the European, the same 
uh, the one we agree on on the G7 is that we have an interest in maintaining stability in the strength. In the UK, the press would call that a U-turn, but let's stick with um, uh, clarification and uh, affirmation. We could go on a lot, and in a way, Ukraine is, is, is hanging over this conversation, but we can't go there in this particular one. We're going to have to wrap up there. So a really big thank you to all my guests, Simon Cooper, Georgina Wright, and Anton Bondaz. Do follow them all on Twitter. And a reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, all major platforms, as well as through our social media. Do like, follow, and subscribe. Please do leave us a review. I always ask. We always look at them. To read more from our experts or to find out more about our events or to become a member, and we'd love to have you, don't forget to visit our website, chathamhouse.org. Next week, we're going to be looking at Sudan with our Africa team and talking about the outbreak of fighting in Khartoum. But for now, goodbye from me, Bronwyn Maddox. Thank you for listening. Thank you.